Welcome to the Two Fools, Two Submissions podcast. The podcast that gets five grand to show, five grand to win, but can only put food on the table with a fight night bonus. My name is Michael Farrow, and today, and hopefully every time this pod is released, I'll be talking about wrestling and mixed martial arts. This is episode two for the 6th of May, 2017. In March 2015, Christian Giustino, commonly known as Cyborg, perpetrated a fraud on the UFC. I have no sympathy with either party. You sign a fighter based on the idea that she can eventually get her heavily muscled 5 for 8 frame down to the point where she can cut to 135 pounds when it's plainly obvious that she can't and won't. To quote Johnny Drama in the Entourage movie, which Ari Emanuel would have watched given he is the inspiration for the series' Ari Gold, it's like when a girl asks if you want to bang her hot sister. Of course you say no, but neither of you really believes you mean it. The narrative in the run-in to UFC Fight Night 95 in September was the brutal weight cut she underwent which overshadowed an uncompetitive fight against Lena Landsberg. The prevailing view was one of sympathy. How could the UFC be so brutal as to force Cyborg to go through such a weight cut and have to lose a further £19 in three days? It's simple. She said she would. It seems that people forgot that she signed a contract to fight twice at 140 pounds with the idea she'd eventually get down to 135 pounds for a potential money fight with Ronda Rousey. Chris was not considered a ratings draw in strike force and when she was popped for Stanisolo in 2011 and Rousey then emerged as strike force's leading female it seemed obvious even then that this was where the money was. When UFC signed Rousey Justino didn't join the UFC for monetary reasons, as they considered the big Brazilian with a deep voice and a steroid ban a lot less valuable than the pretty white girl who went to the Olympics. As I said, I have little sympathy. Should you really be fighting if you have an endocrine illness which would be related to your hormones? Why did you pack on 15 to 20 pounds of muscle between 2013 and the time you signed with UFC in 2015, tipping the scales at 175 pounds? Even 145 is a stretch for a woman at that weight, given women find it much more difficult to shed weight. Conor McGregor attracted some criticism for coming down from the high 160s for fights at 145 pounds. No wonder Cyborg struggled so much. She's trying to do something that's not human. This makes the decision from five years ago to go up in weight when the competition was thin and the money was down below even more baffling. So, now she's back again on the MMA hour, throwing out challenges for a title she didn't want to fight for in the first place. She avoided a drug ban after USADA set a dangerous precedent, issuing a retrospective therapeutic use exemption for a diuretic which was claimed by her doctor to be treatment related to her endocrine illness after her last weight cut. The £145 champion crowned when she turned down the fight, Jermaine Durand Me, says she needs hand surgery after her close and to some controversial decision against Holly Holm. Expected return? Late 2017, when UFC are itching to fill the UFC 214 card in July. Besides, Duranda Me and Holm aren't genuine at the weight. Unfortunately, weight cutting is part of the game, and 160 is probably a sweet spot for a featherweight to walk around at. UFC rushed into creating a women's featherweight division in the first place, when the obvious next division to create was flyweight, possibly followed by atomweight. 
UFC pressure may lead to Deronda Mee vacating her title before her first defence. Surely the first time that has ever happened. They gave Dominic Cruz over two years before he had to vacate the bantamweight title. Jermaine can't even get six months. The other option is, of course, the dreaded interim title. However, why does Cyborg need the title? The real issue here, as it always seems to be when the UFC bends over backwards, is money. Cyborg's contract is for a number of fights for a certain period of time. Bellator is breathing down their necks for rating draws, as Scott Coker has been handed a checkbook and told to compete for the best free agents when they become available. The quandary UFC finds themselves is this. That damned Landsberg fight drew over one million people. I think Lorenzo Fertitta always knew it, which is why he paid her $90,000 a fight for her to compete in Invicta. Even if it's only a TV draw, in a period where UFC's ratings and pay-per-view business have been up and down, one million was a big number, and WMEIMG, the new owners of the UFC, have interest payments to make. Can she sell pay-per-view? That's the next test. Only Australian Megan Anderson, who is Cyborg's successor as Invicta Featherweight Champion, has put a hand up to fight. Surely if UFC is serious about developing this, they need to make a genuine play for any £145 women's fighter. However, it's sad when all the predictions that WMEIMG would solely become interested in big money fights and anybody who can possibly draw have proved sadly correct. So, Alexa Bliss had a better match with Bailey at Payback than she did with Becky Lynch. I heard it on the internet, it must be true. Alexa Bliss, hot, good and stick, athletically absolutely spot on. She has some decent spots, but she's still green, though streets ahead of the vast majority of her predecessors. Alexa's rise has been sharp and meteoric. May seems to be a pivotal month for her. Four years ago she started training, and three years ago this week she debuted on XT. Two Mays ago she turned heel and joined Blake and Murphy, which started her real evolution as she started to show not only her in-ring ability, but learned so much about healing that by the end of their run, Alexa Bliss overshadowed the Blake and Murphy act. This time last year, Bliss was being lined up as the future of the NXT women's division, and while the call-up has been great for her, NXT suffered as a result. As I said, Alexa is still green, but she's shown herself to be the most interesting character amongst the women on the main roster. Natalia has her flashes, Naomi has got over more than at any point in her career, but she's essentially playing herself. I found Charlotte increasingly boring, and Sasha Banks' act went flat some time ago. Of course these women are talented, but overexposure and staleness are a weekly battle in WWE. Alexa was given a tiny opportunity and took it. To make it in WWE can be entirely dichotomous. You have to be the good soldier but also push the envelope. You have to take any chances you're given but you're also set up to fail. It can be like a machine where everything is chopped up and pounded into hamburgers but if the blades miss you you might be able to get away from that hamburger press. Alexa Biss is the little bunny that escaped. 
Bailey is a versatile, underrated worker, a fantastic white meat baby face who falls foul of their inability to book their blue eyes properly. She gets away with something that should be so roundly rejected. However, people buy it. Bailey is a gift from the wrestling gods, and WWE are looking a gift horse in the mouth. For a promotion that made its name on baby faces, they're awfully fond of pushing heel women. Over on SmackDown, Alexa was made to look greener by working with Becky. Becky's good at what she does, and was probably the first of this current crop to get over as a babyface on the main roster unexpectedly. Becky's changing her look a little and has seriously slimmed down, looking lighter and brighter than she ever did before. However, in the ring, she doesn't have a speed setting, just on and off. When you watch the less experienced workers bump and feed for her comebacks, they look slow and awkward. Conversely, Bailey does have a speed setting, and even though Alexa has improved since then, Bailey's ability to slow a match down and take her time makes it a much easier match for Alexa to work. Familiarity plays a part, of course. Bailey and Alexa have their mini feud on NXT, but Bailey herself allows people to play to their own strengths. I didn't like the finish. Nobody did. Once again, their delightful hug lover gets the short straw. However, the faith in the smallest member of their main roster is startling. Where will she be next, May? I can only assume she's just getting started. write the story about the resurrection of New Japan Pro Wrestling, I hope they include a sizable chapter on their smart and sensible use of their major annual tournaments. Sure, the New Japan Cup can be flat, and the G1 Tag League can often vex fans, but the single round robins do not disappoint. The G1 Climax is one of the most reliable platforms for launching single stars in wrestling history. Even if those guys didn't reach the heights, the format itself lends them a unique credibility that you do not find in North America. The champion carnivore at its peak was incredibly strong, but never had that catapult to stardom effect, as guys who won historically were already big stars. For me, the obsession as a pro loving teenager was not the climax, but the best of Super Juniors tournament, originally top of Super Juniors. It started as a single table round robin, but evolved into a two-block tournament in 1996 and expanded to take in more outsiders than before. Benoit, Liger, Otani, Malenko, El Samurai, Eddie Guerrero under a mask as the Black Tiger. It was truly a work-rate fan's dream. Year in, year out, you'd see the evolution of native stars, even if you weren't a New Japan, and by the end of the 90s, my wrestling pendulum had moved fully over to All Japan, it was still must-see stuff. When New Japan was mired in the period of Anoki's madness, pushing untrained MMA fighters and taking the promotion down the toilet, the juniors were still something to watch. In hindsight, the renaissance started in 2010 with the most credible tournament they'd ever had in years along with an expansion to 16 competitors and a number of fresh faces. 
Recent tournaments have genuinely lived up to the legacy. If the announcement is anything to go by, 2017 could be the best yet. People have sold their pants over Block A. We suggest that maybe as many as 24 of the 28 matches should be barn burners. Not the Block B isn't amazing. ACH, Kushida, Bolador Jr. I'm not Taguchi's biggest fan, but the funky weapon can go. With a level of talent and Ghetto's tight booking, every show will be must-see once the tournament gets started on the 17th. Be careful though, don't get jaded and burned out watching an episode of 205 Live as Methadone compared to the pure black tar There will be Time Bomb Takahashi vs Ricochet screaming abuse at TJ Perkins because you can't stand anybody, grown man or child that insists on dabbing. And breathe. submissions podcast you can contact me on twitter at two falls two subs all music on this podcast came from the free music archive freemusicarchive.org for a wide selection of pop safe music you can subscribe like or follow on soundcloud stitcher and TuneIn, and soon hopefully on the itunes directory too see you soon and stay out of trouble